Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And we are going to look at verses 24 to 31 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 24 to 31. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation all these thing, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you are a regular and avid reader of the Bible, you will note that it is filled with warnings. There are numerous promises and numerous revelations about the Lord, His character, His attributes, His glories, His steadfast love, His mercy, His grace, but there are also warnings and revelations like that which we read in verse 24. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. That's a warning to take seriously. The Apostle Paul, when he preached to the men of Athens in Acts chapter 17, said this to them, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see in that text, there is a warning. The Lord commands every single last human being on earth, all men everywhere to repent, meaning to turn from sin and to turn to Him in faith. And whoever decides to reject this warning, to reject this command, to reject this call, Whoever chooses to rebel against it is what the Bible calls an idolater. And to such, the Apostle Paul also wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians these words. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Meaning, for all who spurn the command of the Lord to repent and hold on to that rebellion unto death, the word of God is clear. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Eternal life will not be your inheritance, but instead, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us, your future will be one 
of fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Meaning the adversaries of the Lord and the adversaries of the Lord are those who, hearing the command of God to repent and believe, trample that command underfoot in favor of serving something, anything, anyone else or other or over the living God. Because that is forbidden to all mankind by the Lord, and it's forbidden for this terrifying reason. Verse 24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. It's a fire, he is a fire that devours, a fire that destroys, a fire that cannot be put out by any human means or effort. That consuming fire cannot be appeased by your good works. And Moses, just a few verses earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 4, reminded them of this fact. Look at verses 21 and 22. This is the third time he has said this so far in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan. Now, what's the point of reiterating that for the third time in this letter so far? It's to remind the Israelites of this fact. The Lord their God is indeed a consuming fire, as in... Remember this, O Israel, I, Moses, your leader, the one who has shepherded you through the wilderness, the one that the Lord used to deliver you out from enslavement in Egypt, the one who has dedicated his entire life to serving the Lord, the one that the scripture says is the, was the most humble man in the world at that time, the, even him. When he struck the rock twice in his anger, when he sinned that one time against the Lord, He says to them, if after all I've done, I am disqualified after a lifetime of service for that one mistake, for that one sin, for that one disobedience, if I am barred from entry to the promised land as a result, how much more then do you think he will punish and consume you should you turn away from wholehearted devotion to him and practice obedience and service and worship to idols. Israel, know this. You will not be spared. You will be consumed in the fires of his anger and his wrath. So be careful. Be very careful. That's one of the common themes in this book. The call and the warning to be careful. To be very careful. To serve God. To serve the living God. To serve him and him alone all the days of our life. Moses reminds them of this nature of God as a consuming fire, you have seen time and time again, O Israel, the Lord's devouring of the faithless and the idolatrous in your own midst. You remember the Lord sending a plague upon the people for their creation of a golden calf to worship. Numbers 11.33 tells us a very great plague. A plague struck them as they quarreled with Moses because they craved meat. And the earth opened up, swallowing alive rebels so that they perished from the midst of the assembly of God. Or we notice a fire that comes from the Lord and consumes 250 disobedient men in Israel. The living God is so perfectly and so supremely holy that sinners will be consumed by him. And that God is a consuming fire reveals to us that his holiness burns like a raging inferno against all sin and against all who pledge allegiance to any God or to any idol besides him. Listen to me here. This is and this has always been mankind's greatest problem. It's not how am I going to pay my bills this month? It's not, this person wronged me, and therefore I'm really upset with them. It's not, I hate my job and I don't feel fulfilled in life. It's not, my health is failing me. The biggest problem for every human being on the face of the earth is this. The Lord is a consuming fire. And we are sinners. 
We are the very thing, the very object that this fire will consume. We get a glimpse of this, for example, in Exodus 33, after the golden calf incident. The Lord told Moses these words. Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but listen, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. See, the presence of God among a sinful people is a danger to that people. Because their sinfulness is a cause for that danger, in that the holiness of God might very well consume them along the way by virtue of His presence being among them. And Moses here in Deuteronomy 4.24 is reminding them of this truth. The Lord does not, nor will He ever, compromise His holiness to accommodate the wickedness and the sinfulness of mankind even if that sinfulness is coming from his covenant people Israel. When they sinned, many died as a result. Why? Because the Lord is a consuming fire. And unless someone steps in to deal with this, our total inability to fix this problem ourselves, unless someone worthy solves this issue for us, every single one of us would be consumed by this holiness that is our God. And so, we cry out as believers this morning, thank God for Jesus Christ. He is the solution to this, our greatest problem. As Jesus, God himself, came to earth as he took on flesh and he made his dwelling among us. Why? For what purpose? To seek and to save the lost. And how did he do this? How did he seek and save the lost? How is it that you, if you believe in his name, are saved here this morning? You are saved by the sinless, perfect life. By, because Jesus lived the, sinless, the perfect, sinless life that God requires from all who would be in relationship to himself. You are saved because Christ went to the cross where he, as your stand-in, as your substitute, absorbed the holy wrath of God that was due against you on himself. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross and he lived the life that we must live, both of them, in our place. And so all who turn to him, for all who turn to him in faith, His work at the cross has dealt with the consuming fire of the Lord against your sin. And his work of living a sinless life is credited to your account when you turn to him. So by virtue of this glorious blessing, you being found in Christ, your sins are forgiven and you are considered in the eyes of the Lord as one who has lived the very perfect life that Jesus Christ himself lived. As you are clothed in his righteousness. And so coming to Christ and believing in his name means that for you and to you, the Lord is no longer a consuming fire. And falling into his hands is no longer a fearful thing. Because his relationship to you has transformed from being a consuming fire that will fly out against a sinner to being your loving heavenly father. And your status with him is you are his adopted son or daughter. And you are given the inheritance, the wonderful, beautiful inheritance of eternal life with him. All of this is secured and offered to each one by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as you've already heard here this morning, if you have not turned to the Lord in faith, you still find yourself in the place of being one who at any moment might fall into the hands of God, not as your father, but as a consuming fire. Repent and believe the gospel. It is a warning to you. God is a consuming fire, a warning to be taken seriously. And Moses continues, not only is our Lord a consuming fire, but also in verse 24 he tells us he is a jealous God. Now, what does that word mean, right? Because 
we have an idea of what jealousy means. We filter that word through the human emotion of jealousy, which, when I consulted the dictionary, has three definitions. The first is this, envious, being envious or resentful of the good fortune or achievements of another. That doesn't apply to the Lord, because the Lord is not jealous in the sense that he hates or resents the fact that another has achieved some degree of status or that they've been given something that they don't necessarily earn. That's a human trait. That's how we are with one another. That's, and that definition of jealousy is a sin. It's a form of covetousness. It is unacceptable for us as believers to be that way with one another. Instead, Scripture calls on you to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're not those who smile on the outside. Oh, I'm so happy you got that promotion. <laughs> While being disgruntled on the inside. We're not those who give in to that feeling that says, they don't deserve that, I deserve that. The truth is, neither of you deserve it. So you rejoice with your fellow believer when things go well with them. The second dictionary definition of jealousy in the human sense is this, being fearful or wary of losing your position or situation to someone else. Being fearful or wary of losing your situation or position to someone else. This could be a boss who notices the talent of a particular worker coming up behind them and fearing that they will be upended by that worker or that their position or status will be overtaken by that worker, they start to sabotage that worker. It could be a boyfriend or a girlfriend who is anxious or worried that someone is going to swoop in and catch the eyes of their partner. It could be the funny guy in a group of friends who is irritated by the fact that another funny guy has joined their group of friends. And that, that, that new funny guy might steal their thunder. In any case, none of these describe the jealousy of the Lord. These are, again, sinful dispositions that we experience. Do not be anxious about such things. Don't become protectionist. Don't start subtly moving against people that you are jealous of because you think they're going to take your clout or your thunder. Don't try to secretly sabotage them. Scripture tells us, Trust in the Lord who loves both you and the talented worker behind you, who loves you and the other funny guy in your group. The third definition of jealousy in the human sense is having to do with or arising from feelings of envy, apprehensions, or bitterness. Meaning, you look at somebody else their personality traits, their qualities, their talents, their life situation, and you feel envy against that person or bitterness or hostility against that person. Instead of praising the Lord for your own particular unique wiring and situation, instead of praising the Lord that God has gifted that person to accomplish a certain work in the kingdom of God, and that God has brought that person to their situation, Instead of recognizing that God has made you useful in a particular manner to be used in the kingdom of God for his good purpose, you look at that person and you say, I should have been that person. I should have that role or I should have that position. And it's just a way of being ingrateful, thankless. We look at others and we experience bitterness of, feelings of bitterness and envy. Why are they there? Why are they doing that? How have they gotten that? I deserve all that. And those feelings will inevitably, unless they are checked by repentance and joy in the Lord, lead to your external attempts subtly to damage, to obstruct, and to undermine others. And may it never be that you are the cause of undermining someone who has been particularly gifted by God to do a certain thing for the kingdom. May it never be that you get in the way of that because you are jealous. May it never be that you are so upset by the achievements and fortunes of another that you resent them for it. May it never be that you fear losing position or status to the point that you subtly, or even overtly, work against another person who's striving to serve the Lord according to their gifts. 
May it never be that you are overtaken by feelings and by thoughts of envy and jealousy with another, but instead, by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, may you, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, take every thought captive to obey Christ. So these three definitions of jealousy are what usually come to mind when we think of the word. But none of these apply to the Lord when the Lord is, reveals himself to be a jealous God. Because the Lord is not envious at the good fortune of his people. He is the one who bestows that good fortune upon his people. He is the one who dispenses life and breath and all good things to the peoples of the earth. The Lord is not fearful of losing his position or losing his status because he is God and there is no other. There is none in existence who can challenge God or counsel him in any way. The Lord will always be on the throne and scripture has revealed to us this truth. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to him. The Lord also doesn't suffer from feelings of apprehension or envy or bitterness. So when the scriptures apply the term jealousy to the Lord, which it does quite a few times, it means something entirely different from our human experience. So the next question would be, so then what does it mean for the Lord to be jealous? The Lord being a jealous God means that he is fiercely protective In the sense that he knows and he understands firsthand that the best thing for his creation is that they believe in him and they serve him and they obey him with the entirety of their hearts. And the Lord, for that reason, does not and will not accept any disloyalty, any divided affection, or any syncretism. That's a fancy word that means merging and fusing and combining his worship with the practices of other religions. As I drive down on my way here in the morning, there is one church that has signs on the side of Highway 8 that always provoke me. Because what church has on their sign Tai Chi classes later on today? There's another thing, Qi Gong. I don't know if I pronounced it right. I'm sorry, Qi Gong or something. But these are practices of other religions that are being brought into these church buildings and advertised. The Lord does not allow such things. The Lord is zealously single-minded in this regard. He does not and will not permit anyone or will not permit or welcome any split loyalties. There is no room or consent given to anyone to do anything other than follow him wholeheartedly. And there is zero allowance for any hint or whiff of idolatry, any hint or whiff of practices that come from other religions to false gods. This is what the Lord means when he says he is a jealous God. He demands exclusive loyalty from all the peoples. And those who truly serve him recognize this and concern themselves with ensuring that their hearts are fully fixed upon and fully devoted to the Lord God. Why? Because as Jesus told us in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And this, right, it's writ large in church history. The visible church is littered with many who sought to combine the worship of the Lord, the consuming fire, the jealous God, and respect for the values and the ideologies of the day and the culture and the society. And what ends up happening when these visible churches start to try and do, merge these two things together? What ultimately ends up winning out? The values of the culture, the values of society. And they become the dominant force in the church while the scriptures are relegated to the background. And this so-called church then becomes an apostate social club that parrots the world's values to those in attendance rather than opening the scriptures and revealing the life-giving double-edged sword that is the word of God. So Moses here is warning Israel as they are preparing to enter the promised land that the God who delivered them from Egypt, he is a consuming fire to sinners, to rebels, 
and to idolaters. And he is a jealous God who expects and demands our all, all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And he does not brook or accept any disloyalty. And so Moses, after letting the people know God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, he continues now by warning the people as to what will happen to them should they sin against the Lord by practicing idolatry. Look at verse 25. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by so doing or and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger. So this is a warning to you parents and grandparents. The things of God are to be repeated to the future generations in your line. Tell them the truth about God. That God is indeed a consuming fire and a jealous God. Don't simply content yourself with telling your kids stories about Joseph and his coat of many different colors without telling them about the consuming fire of God that rained down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sexual deviancy and wickedness. Do not simply content yourself with telling your children and your grandchildren that Noah brought a bunch of cute fluffy animals onto a big wooden boat two by two without letting them know that the Lord consumed the entire world outside the boat because the people were wicked and because every thought and intention of their hearts was only evil all the time. Don't content yourself with simply telling your children that the people of Israel created a golden calf, bowed down to it, and that made God angry. No, tell them the Lord was on the verge of consuming the entire camp of Israel and starting again with Moses, and that the Lord told the peoples who obeyed him in Exodus 32, 27, go to and fro from the gate and throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Now in our day, we might recoil from such things, right? Because we prefer and we've been fed a steady diet of nice, sentimental, biblical pablum. We want all the cute. We want all the nice, all the pleasant, all the emotionally agreeable things. And listen, there are numerous pleasant, wonderful, emotionally agreeable things in Scripture to teach your children and teach your children all of them. Teach your children the abundant grace of God, the wonderful mercy of God, the compassion of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God. Teach your children all of that, but do not forget to teach your children that our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. See what a generation that has avoided teaching their next generations about the holiness and the jealousy of God is bringing upon the church today. So Moses here tells parents to ensure that children and our children's children understand the full counsel of God. The seriousness and the gravity of the Lord and His covenant. Make sure, Israel, that your children know and understand the commands of God, the rewards of serving God, and the curses that come with disobeying God. While we might like to blur what we consider the rough edges of the Lord to our children, the Lord is clear. I want your children and your children's children to know me as I have revealed myself in the Scriptures. I want them to understand me. I want them to understand from an early age that I am the God who blesses those who trust in me, those who serve me, those who believe in me, and I'm also the God who curses those who reject me and choose to serve other gods. Moses notes in verse 25 that this will most likely come to pass in the life of Israel, in verse 25, when they have grown old in the land. See, when the nation had been in Canaan enjoying the blessings for a prolonged period of time, Moses said, be careful that you do not forget that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord delivered you. See, we can see in our own day, right? 
Times of prolonged peace and prolonged prosperity and prolonged blessing tend to produce, if we are not careful and on guard and aware, they tend to produce lazy, forgetful, ungrateful people who do not remember or value all that it took from their fathers to secure the blessings we enjoy and the good life we enjoy today. For Israel, to forget the Lord would lead to their acting corruptly by turning to idols. So you see what happens to future generations when grandparents and parents do not take seriously their duty to impart to their children, to remind their children, to teach their children the full counsel of God to their descendants. Moses continues, when you've grown old in the land, verse 25, if you act corruptly, that word means if you act immorally, sinfully, rebelliously, by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, meaning behaving in a manner the Lord deems evil. In this case, bowing down to idols, which is a heinous evil committed against the jealous God of Israel who is a consuming fire. To do this, according to verse 25, is to provoke the Lord to anger. You see that in verse 25? Provoke here means to enrage, to anger him. And there would, as Moses continues, should the people of Israel choose to go this route, there will be consequences for such idolatry. And we see them beginning in verse 26. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to possess. So you see that phrase, I call as witnesses to testify to the truthfulness of my word here, Heaven and earth themselves, says the Lord. In all ancient trials, there were required to confirm any account two witnesses. And the Lord's two witnesses here are heaven and earth. That phrase means the entirety of creation has been called to listen to the solemn oath that the Lord is going to speak to Israel. Heaven and earth, the entirety of creation, are witnesses of what the Lord will do to them should they turn away from Him to worship other gods. And you'll see it later when Israel is indeed sent into exile for their idolatry. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says this in Isaiah 1-2, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. The Lord has spoken. Children I have reared up. Children have I reared up, reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The witnesses have been called to the stand. And what will the consequences, the future consequences of their idolatry be? Look at verse 26. First, you will soon perish from the land that you are going over to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. Now, some of you might ask, didn't the Lord promise this land to Abraham's descendants forever? And the answer to that question is, yes, he did. We read, for example, in Genesis 17, verse 8, I will give, this is the Lord speaking to Abraham, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, meaning the land that Abraham was physically dwelling in at that time, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. In context, the land here, the promise speaks to the physical descendants of Abraham, meaning the Hebrew people, and to the physical land, which we now know as Jerusalem and the surrounding area, the land that Abraham was specifically dwelling in at that time. Ultimately, we know, if you read Revelation, the Lord will fulfill His promise, as we will see in a few short verses. But there is for a time, as the Lord gives them the law, the Mosaic covenant, there is for a time a conditional aspect. As the Lord establishes His covenant with the people of Israel about to enter the land in Deuteronomy, as they prepared to go in to conquer and to settle in the land of Canaan at the Lord's command, the Lord repeatedly reiterates to them by way of warning that if they do not follow the stipulations, the commands, and the rules in the covenant, but instead turn away from worshiping the Lord with exclusive loyalty, the Lord will boot them out of that land for a time. But only for a time, because the Lord has promised to bring His people Israel to repentance. He has promised to return to them, not because they deserve it, not because they are worthy of it, 
but because God is a God who keeps his word and his promise. Even though they remain stubborn, even though they remain stiff-necked and hard-hearted towards Christ, even though at this very moment I have watched YouTube videos of rabbis in Israel spitting at Christians as Christians walk by in service to the Lord, even though they at this moment reject and spurn their very own Messiah, the Lord will not leave them or forsake them. The Lord will not forget his word and his promises to them. He will one day in the future transform their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And in that day they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn over their stubbornness as they turn to Jesus Christ in faith. The second consequence of their idolatry is in verse 27. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples and there you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord your God will drive you. See, the idolatry of Israel was and is a unique sort of wickedness. For this people to turn to carved idols was a forsaking of the Lord that is unique in its degree of profaning the name of the Lord. Because this was the people who witnessed the work of the Lord in their midst. This was the people that God chose specifically to be his holy nation, to be his kingdom of priests, to be the people among whom he would dwell. This specific people at that time is the people that he fought for, the people he delivered from enslavement to Egypt with a mighty power and outstretched arm. Their very own eyes saw his wonders. And the Lord called this people to represent him, to be his ambassadors to the nations. But instead of doing that, they chose to bow down to idols. Idols that cannot see, hear, smell. Idols that have no real existence. Idols that do not and that cannot answer when anyone calls upon them. They traded the Lord, the God who was so close to them that he hears when they call for blocks of wood that must be carried around by those who worship them. And so because of these distinct privileges given to Israel by the Lord, should they violate this covenant, should they reject it, should they rebel against it, the consequences would be quite grave. This is the people that killed the prophets sent to them by the Lord to warn them to be repentant and to return to the Lord. This is the people to whom God sent his very own son. God came to them in the flesh and they rejected him. But not only did they reject him, they agitated for him to be crucified by the Romans. The millennia of, that this people has expressed to their God is quite mind-boggling. And unless Scripture had told me that a partial hardening has come upon them so that the fullness of the Gentiles had come in, I would never be able to understand it. And if they turned to idolatry at this time, they would perish from the land and the Lord would scatter them among the peoples and he would leave them few in numbers. The Lord had already revealed this to the prior generation in Leviticus 26 when he said, If in spite of this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be laid waste. So you see, the consuming fire that is the Lord should the nation of Israel turn from him to serve idols, he would disperse them to exile among the Gentile nations. It would be the Lord himself who would drive them, meaning he will forcibly send them out. He will be the primary cause and driver of their relocation from the promised land. And sadly, this would come to pass, as we read in 2 Kings 17, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala on the harbor and on the Habor, the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out from before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced." And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. 
They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. So perishing from the land for a short time, being scattered and left few in number, these are the first of the covenant curses for idolatry. And the third is found in verse 28. When you find yourself in these regions, when you find yourself scattered, there you will serve the gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. In other words, not only will Israel endure the active curse of God and wrath of God for their sinful rebellion, but he will also hand them over to the very thing that they wanted. This is called the passive wrath of God. You see, we all think we know what's best for our lives. We all think that we know best what will make us joyful and what will make us happy. And a lot of times the things that we want go directly against the word of God, and directly against our own joy and our own happiness. And oftentimes, we will think that the word of God is what is restrictive and robbing us of our joy and our pleasure. And every time we sin, that's what we're saying. I believe this is better for me in this moment than your commands, O Lord. For some, that might be fornication. For some, that might be drugs. For some, that might be lying to save face. For others, it might be trying to fit in in order to avoid the cultural backlash that inevitably comes with serving the Lord with fullness of heart. And for such, there are times when the Lord says, is that what you want? Here, you can have it. Taste it and see. Does it really make you happy or does it turn you into a fool? The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter 1 describes this giving up or giving over, this passive wrath, three times. Romans 1.24, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to, the, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Again, in 1.26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And once more in 1.28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is called the passive wrath of God, the giving up of a person or a people to the very sins that they so desperately desire to take part in, allowing the consequences of those sins to reveal themselves in in full measure. For ancient Israel, it was the sin of idolatry. And so when the Lord sent them to exile, he gave them up or gave them over to serve the gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor eat nor hear nor smell. And this is the worst of curses because it runs in the opposite direction of our true joy all the while we think that we're going to gain joy from it. To serve such gods that have no ears to hear your cries, no eyes to see your plight, no hands to deliver you, no smell to receive your fragrant offerings of praise, what hope is there in that? It is the Lord who carries you and sustains you. It is the Lord who carries you on eagles' wings. It is the Lord who listens to you. The Lord who knows you. The Lord who helps in times of trouble. The lesson he's saying here to Israel is learn this lesson, O Israel. And the same can be said for us today. Learn this lesson. It is the Lord who knows you. And know this, the Lord does not do this in vain. The Lord does not hand Israel over to a season of worthless idols in vain. He declared this through the prophet Israel or Ezekiel, saying this when he scatters them. I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations some who escape the sword, when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. How I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols and they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils they have committed for all their abominations and they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I will do this to them. Meaning this handing over of the Lord, this handing over of Israel to this will ultimately issue in their national repentance when the day comes that the Lord changes their heart and they, reveal, they realize the emptiness of their idols and understand the steadfast love and mercy of God. 
This is what Moses says in 4.29 of Deuteronomy. But from there, from the place of exile, where they are serving the gods of wood and stone, from there you will seek the Lord and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, there are some who believe that the disobedience of Israel has led the Lord to take these types of promises and transfer them over to the church. Promises that were made specifically to Israel. The church is now the recipient of all of those, and Israel no longer has kind of any central place in God's ultimate plan. There will be no future time when God makes good on the promises that he has made to Israel. And while it is true that in the New Testament, the promises of God oftentimes have these unexpected, wonderful, grand expansions upon the original promises. While it is true that the Lord's promises prove over and over again to be greater than the original promises could have ever imagined, the recipients could have ever imagined, they have not lost their original intention. The Lord will indeed, as He always does, do more than promised, but not less. While it is true that during this time God is working through His church, that in no way means that the, the church has replaced Israel and that the promises God made to Israel no longer apply to Israel. Listen to verses 30 and 31 of Deuteronomy. When you, Israel, are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. For, or because, the Lord your God is a merciful God. Listen to this. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. That's a serious verse. Seriously consider what the Lord is, is saying here. If the Lord should give up on Israel, then what God said is not true. God said he will not forget the covenant that he made with their fathers. To set that covenant aside would mean that he lied. He promised here that he would not leave them. The them in question is Israel proper. But if he transfers the promises to the church, that means that he does, in fact, leave them. It means that he is not the merciful God. He presents himself to be for them. And if the Lord makes specific promises to a specific people only to break them, then the question is this for you and I today. How can we who love Christ today be certain that the Lord will maintain the promises that he's made to us? No, as the Apostle Paul tells us with reference to Israel and the promises of God in Romans 11, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Listen to this. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. There's just a couple of texts that speak to this. Here are the promises that the Lord has made to the people of Israel. The famous text in Jeremiah, for example. One that we, for some reason, ascribe to ourselves, but really speaks to the future of Israel. Jeremiah 29 says this, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And even again, more clearly, through the prophet Ezekiel, one of my favorite texts, it's a little longer, but listen. Therefore say to the house of Israel, meaning Israel proper, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleansed from all of your uncleannesses and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all of your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and, of, and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Meaning, There is coming a day because the Lord is true to his word, true to his promise, when Israel will repent of her sins and return to the Lord and receive the fulfillment of all the promises God has made to her. The Lord will not leave the nation of Israel. Again, not because they are worthy, but because God is good. And the word for leave here means to drop, abandon, forsake, leave behind, cast aside, release, let go, or let down. The Lord will never do any of these things to his nation, Israel. He will never fully destroy them. There will always be a remnant. There will always be Israelites on the earth. Whereas every other nation can fall by the wayside, the Lord will ensure that there are always Israelites upon the earth through whom or upon whom the promises will be satisfied. The Lord will not forget the covenant he made with their fathers, meaning he cannot. He cannot suppress He cannot stop remembering. He cannot not be faithful to the covenants he has made with Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Now, in closing, you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. To know that the Lord is so perfectly faithful to every single promise that he makes in scriptures. To know that he will, in his mercy and in his steadfast love, see to it that every jot and tittle of the word that he speaks to you and I who love him and who trust the Lord Jesus Christ will come to pass means we can rest on the promises and on the foundation of his promises that he has made to us who believe. So for example, when the Lord says to you and I who believe in Christ today in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then you say, amen, I believe it. God spoke it, he means it, it is true. The enemy might strive to make you feel condemned at points in your life, but the enemy is a liar. God is true. The Lord made a promise. If you love Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Rest in that, fellow saint. The Lord promised for all who believe in Ephesians 1 that you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Meaning, there is an inheritance that is waiting for you, dear saint. If you trust Christ, God has promised it to you. And when God says something, when he makes a promise, what does that mean? He will fulfill his promise because he always fulfills his promises. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is the down payment, the guarantee that you will one day acquire the inheritance. So rest in the promise of the Lord who always makes good on his word.